And you're welcome to the RT Rugby Podcast as Ireland Six Nations campaign draws to a close with the best performance so far under Andy Farrell. A 32-18 win against England. The future's in good hands. Ireland are going to win the World Cup. What were we all worried about, Don Lennon? You were the only fellow worried you, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, you were trying to get rid of all at sundry. Uh, as I said, all's well that ends well. I mean, uh, I was probably one of the lucky few to be in the Aviva last Saturday afternoon with RT Radio. Uh, I have to say, I was a bit worried in the opening 15 minutes of the game. It looked like a, a rehash of, of previous matches against England. Um, but, you know, once Ireland weathered that storm on the line, the Maravatoja uh, five-metre line-out, um, things just took off. Uh, it was just a pity, really, that you had nobody there to witness it because, uh, you know, as we've said in the past, those defensive stands on the line, you can just imagine the crowd getting behind the team and the energy that would... Uh, uh, be there for the players. Imagine whatever it was, was uh, at half time, 20 points to six, I think. The reception they would have got walking down the tunnel into the dressing room. And that's that's what you miss most. But um, look, it was it was great to see. I think we have mentioned over the course of the, the podcast uh, just how, you know, the, the recurring elements of, of Ireland's game have been very strong. So um, there was always a likelihood that they would bring it together at some stage. Uh, for me, it was the best performance since uh, you and I, Hugh, were at um, the opening game of the World Cup uh, against Scotland in Yokohama, a, a convincing win that day. Uh, I'm actually delighted for Andy Farrell because, um, you know, he's kept, I think, incredibly calm throughout this whole process. Uh, and it must be hugely difficult for him. I mean, he was only in the job a wet week when COVID arrived. So you're dealing with circumstances totally outside of the norm. Uh, and I'm delighted that he's had his day in the sun and nobody's saying, look, that this is perfect or this is. But I think it's vindication for the work that has been done and also for the togetherness of the group within that squad for the past two months. Yeah, and we might have a little bit deeper into, I suppose, exactly where we're at a little bit later on. But I, I guess, Bernard, the main thing is that this performance has been a long time coming. Yeah, it has been a long time coming. Um, and we've seen we've seen glimpses, but I think as pundits, we, you know, we had to be frustrated with... Uh, the way the whole thing came together, but I think they and I think Andy Farrell has really pushed the emotional side of things and the morale in the squad and um, trying to create more uh, better leaders and and a, and, a, and a shared responsibility. And um, I think it does take a while, um, and I think that they'll get huge confidence from that. I mean, that's the first for me match that they've won. You know, maybe when they haven't been expected to win. And I know, you know all kinds of rumours coming out about England, but look at England, our World Cup finalists, Six Nations, Autumn Cup winners, and they came to Dublin and we put in a, a, a dominant display, very shrewd tactical display. And I think that, that'll help us win games in the future. I think everyone will settle down now. The players will will believe in, in the methods. I know they all said they did, but there's nothing like a good win to, to ram at home. So I think it could be a turning point for this team because in terms of talent, um, and that's probably why we've been frustrated. That, like we have the talent to match France and, and England. Maybe France have got a couple of X Factor players, but when we're on our game, uh, I think there is huge potential in this team. It's an interesting one, Wes. You know, if you if you try and gauge, you know, where does the performance come from? And and was it that you know Sexton and the players have been telling us all along? It's it's coming, it's coming. We're nearly there. We will get there. And then this is the product of that we see on the pitch. Or was it? a once-off rise up and fight against England on our home patch to kind of prove the doubters wrong. 
I, so Brian, I just was speaking about it in terms of the emotion involved with the pairs, and you can't get to that pitch all the time. Do you think it's unfair to say that this was just an emotive performance born out of frustration, or are we actually developing somewhat? I think it's probably both. Um, if you were to take the middle ground about it, I mean, I think definitely seemed to start with like even their body language pre-game was 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 quite telling. Um, there was a huge intent there. There was passion. There was physicality and all that. But there was huge clarity there as well. Um, it wasn't wild uh, passion. It was they were just at that perfect pitch where there was absolute clarity about what they're doing and an absolute physical conviction as well. But like it's definitely a marker that shows what we're capable of, and it's definitely something to aspire to. But you know, as much as we were told to be patient and not be hasty in our judgment when playing well well equally we have to not be hasty on the back of one good performance so um, I think there is historical precedent that performances like that are difficult to deliver consistency consistently that we've seen them against England particularly in the past you think of 2011 you think of a couple of other Grand Slam deniers for England over the years and I think particularly in a tournament situation which we're obviously all building towards with a World Cup and um, reaching that pitch every week is extremely difficult um, and, and not really sustainable. So there's still a huge duty on them to, to continue to evolve uh, other parts of their game and to have a kind of level of technical excellence that allows you to win games when you're not quite at that perfect emotional pitch. That's really interesting, Don. And that's what I've been thinking about the last couple of days, exactly what Wes has just mentioned there. And I guess the frustrating thing is, on the back of such a good win and a good performance we actually won't find out the answer to that for quite a long time now because we're not going to have a same test like that for a long long time no that's the huge disappointment really i mean if it was this time next year ireland are heading off on a three test tour to new zealand which is you know that's the ultimate testing ground so it would have been the the perfect launch pad on, on which to finish the six nations and go into a summer tour uh, it now looks as if, if the Lions Tour, the latest, that it, it is going to go ahead, which means that even if Ireland do manage to get some form of rugby during the summer, uh, it'll be November before we play with a full deck of cards again. So from that point of view, it's disappointing. But um, look, I, I, I fully take on board the emotion thing. But emotion is all... Emotion plays a huge part in rugby at every single level, be it a Lions test, be it club rugby, be it... Uh, Munster Leinster next weekend emotion is, is a key ingredient and yes you can't be up at that pitch all the time but I think to be fair to this Ireland team in the face of adversity they have shown great balance between the proper emotion levels and uh, their application on the field you go back to the, the Peter Romani sending off in the opening game in, in, in Cardiff so early in the game I mean there was a sort of an emotional coming together seeing Peter going off the field and uh, lads were, everybody's going to have to lift their game, which they did. And they were within, you know, a couple of defensive errors, perhaps, of, of winning the game, despite the fact that they were down to, to 14 men for so long. Um, so, I mean, I think that is within, and that comes when the environment is right. The emotion and the togetherness is a byproduct of, in effect, having a group of people who enjoy each other's company, are comfortable in each other's company, and and want to play for each other. And, you know, that we've said it many times before, it has never been questioned with this group. And I think it's probably never been as important, given that they've been locked away for two months, separated from everyone, 
haven't been able to do the normal things like have six or seven fellas in a room, maybe playing a game of cards or having a chat or doing something. So in the most testing of circumstances, those characteristics came to the fore. But, um, you know, I, I, I think that emotion, regardless of how rugby has developed from a technical point of view and uh, all the, the S&C and all the other stuff that go, and go with it, Irish people by their nature are emotional people. They are, you know, whether it's hurling or GAA or, or Gaelic football, whatever, there is that emotional connect. And we probably, I won't say we have the, the, the franchise on it, but it plays a huge role in Irish sport. And was I surprised to see it for an Irish team playing against England in Dublin? Absolutely not. You'd be asking questions if it wasn't there. But I think, to be fair, uh, it was just one of a number of key ingredients that put this whole performance together. Well, Wes, I, I understand you you can't relate to that kind of emotion that Dolan's talking about there. I'll try and describe it to you later on what it's like. But Birch, in terms of somebody that encapsulated that emotion, if you like, that commitment, that fight, almost for me, was single-handedly Robbie Henshaw seemed to turn what was a bit of a pedestrian start, if you think back to the first five or six minutes, single-handedly turned that into the performance that we then got from Ireland. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's had a brilliant tournament and... Uh, I actually thought he played better at uh, even better at thirteen. Um, he's just he's he's just so enthusiastic. He's making good reads. He, he's making good decisions when to pass, when to carry, um, and he just he's been constantly up for the fight. And, and I think you know it was important for us. Look at England, we're missing Manu Tuilagi. He's been a key man for them. I would love to see Manu come up against you know uh, Robbie and Bundy, the form Robbie's in at the moment. But you know he made sure that they Ollie Lawrence had a very difficult. Um, second cap for him. Uh, you know he's a player with huge promise, but he he looked, you know he he looked like just a club player in comparison with with Henshaw and and um, I think he's starting to grow into the leadership role. He's obviously a quiet guy, um, but he's become a key key player in this Irish team. And I think he took on responsibility to um to be a talisman for Ireland. And, and yeah, it was it was a phenomenally impressive performance. As I said, on the back of a very strong Six Nations for him personally. Yeah, and, you know, as we've spoken about Robbie Henshaw, you know, this season on this podcast a good few times and kind of questioned, like, you know, is this guy going to actually evolve into the player that had so much promise at the start? I think, you know, for me, watching him on Saturday, I, I was kind of saying to myself, right, this is it. Like, this is what, I guess, the excitement has been about. This is the promise that he's been um, kind of hinting at over a long period of time. And for whatever reason now, he just seems to have burst out of, a, out of the bag and, and maybe 13 is positioned and maybe he's just hit the right vein of form. Yeah, I think, first of all, Birch's point is well made that like there's clear evidence there that all England's best performances come when Tuolagi is absolutely at the peak of his powers um, and he's kind of a transformative effect on the team in the same way we're talking about Robbie Henshaw having it. But like I suppose he's become a talismanic figure over the the last few, over this campaign particularly. Probably still haven't seen as much an attack out of him as maybe you would have hoped. Like he's been very good, but... Uh, you know, it's nearly his defensive work that's, that's been more standout. But, uh, like, there was a number of very good individual performances. Obviously, the team is completely different with Tyke Furlong in it. Keith Earls was, you know, excellent as always. Did you see Nandolo's, Did you see Nandolo's comments about, about Keith Earls saying he's, for, for him, Nandolo, obviously, who was a bit of a kind of a, a mythical character on the wing, if you like, over the years, said that for him, Keith Earls has been one of the most consistent and best playing wingers in Test Rugby in the last 10 yeah, years. just like, I mean, even just the way he transferred the ball twice 
uh, as Johnny May was hauling him down from one hand to the other and back again, like to have that presence of mind to to constantly do the right thing, even under fatigue. But Donald made the point on Monday night that the, the striking thing about this performance was that like we've had good individual performances all throughout, but I suppose this was the time that collectively it came together in in lots of different facets and and probably to me that collective was was, was more stand out than any one individual in this case. Yeah, um, I, by the way, Madolo, by the way, after complimenting Keith Earls, saying he was one of the best performers, a few of the Limerick lads said, oh, there'll be points for you. Whenever you come to Limerick, Madolo, <laughs> you've got the freedom of the city, whereupon he replies, well, actually, I prefer Cork, lads, so I'll be heading there. He's thinking honestly, I'm doing it. Well, he's a history with Tomas O'Leary. He's he's posed on Twitter for uh, in Cork Ireland jerseys many times in the past. He's a bright boy, that Nemdola. He knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he's not that bright wearing a Cork Ireland jersey. In fairness, but anyway, <laughs> he wouldn't wear one to Limerick. I say even the size of him. Yeah. To give credit, huge credit to Keith Earls. I mean, the finish for the try was brilliant. The set piece move in which the try came from, obviously, it's been highlighted since that. Um, Leinster used it against Biarritz a good few years back. Um, there was a clip of them practising as well, or warming up, but they were practising it on the, tr- on the pitch of the Aviva. Uh, but the execution and the finish from Keith Earls, he doesn't seem like he's lost a yard of that pace, does he? Ah, it was incredible, really, because there were so many elements of that that had to be absolutely spot on. Um, if you look, actually, in the build-up, I was watching, I, I always take a note when I'm doing commentary about, you know, the, the, the home line-outs, the opposition line-outs, how many, how many uh, opportunities they've had. And uh, England had about six lineouts before Ireland got there first. It was as if England weren't kicking into touch, knowing that Ireland do a lot, you know, that their lineout has been very good in the championship. So that opportunity, I think it was the first or second opportunity. It was certainly the first lineout Ireland had in the opposition half. But when you look at all the elements that have to come together for it, uh, the setup has to be right in that you've got to get the opposition exactly positioned where you want them. Jack Conan was was starting in the scrum half position. Um, the throw from Rob Herring has to go in over the, the, the 15 metre was absolutely on the money Jack Conan, it's very difficult trying to do a time your jump when you're, you know, you're coming in from the side if you like uh, obviously then Keith Earls coming from the blind side, so easy to overrun that or so easy to not be in the right position when the tap is because to be fair to Jack Conan there was a contest in the air Tom Curry got back to actually contest for the ball. And so took one of his hands down. He almost it, it interfered with him, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, not only do you have to win the ball, but you've got to tap it and control it with your wrist to put it forward into the gap between the next person at the back of the line for Keith Earls to, to get it. So, so everything to that point was brilliant. But let Earls did a 35 metres to go. Um, but the way he just sort of changed gear, the way he kind of left Johnny May dead, everybody talks about May's acceleration. But, you know, when he checked him, there was no way he was getting back into position to, to affect any sort of a tackle. Um, so everything had to go right. And, and to be fair to everybody who was kind of intrinsically involved in it, they all got their roles perfect. So, I mean, it was a brilliant finish. But to me, I thought Earls is the try that was disallowed. The manner with which he, he finished yeah. that off just yeah. showed his athleticism even in great. It was an awful pity because that, in terms of a team try, was even better again. Mm. Um, it's also actually so, second in the entire Six Nations in terms of the amount of dominant tackles made in this tournament, which for a guy that's kind of dismissed as being a smaller winger, um, shows his physical contribution has been huge. His breakdown work has been good. He was playing a first receiver the other day 
Like you've got to think he's played himself right into that Lions mix again now. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I'd say, look, there's no doubt about that. I think one of the things, uh, I remember we used to have arguments with Ron, but well, not arguments, discussions over the years. Uh, you know, when Keith Earls went through a period there where he was either injured uh, by his own admission, everybody was telling him he was too small. So he was putting on, uh, he was putting on weight. And, you know, he, he, he got to the point of his career where he said, feck this, I want to play at the weight that I'm most comfortable with. And he's done that over the last three or four years of his career. A, he doesn't seem to have had any injuries. And B, he's playing the rugby of his life. But um, O'Gara used to say, oh, geez, you should see what this fella can do in training. We, we were training during the week and he does this and he's that. And, you know, the point I'm making is, unfortunately, people on the outside, we're not privy to what goes on in training. You can only judge by what you see on the field. But it's clear that he is a phenomenal athlete. He's now very comfortable in his own body. I thought his interview, if you remember one of the earlier rounds, he made one or two defensive errors and uh, he was put up on press the following Tuesday. And he just said, look, I I made a mistake. I can live with that. Just forget about it. Move on. Whereas Keith Earls of maybe six or seven years ago, he'd let he'd dwell on that and he'd get tied up in that. I mean, he's absolutely comfortable in his own skin. He looks like he's really enjoying his rugby, and he looks as if he could play for another two or three years. Two other players that had brilliant performances, I thought Birch were um, Tyke Furlong, who's obviously had his time out with injury, but looks back to his brilliant best. Um, and I thought Jack Conan had a superb game as well. And just in the context of the week that we announced DJ Stander would be leaving at the end of the season, that was his last game for Ireland. I thought Jack Conan stepped in really well. Uh, and, and as somebody, again, who just when he's been given an opportunity, it seems to be in a rich train of form, has been blighted by injury. So I was delighted to see him play so well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, the, you know, the selection of moving CJ to six, uh, Van der Fleer also had, a, had an excellent game. Obviously, Will Connors. Um, got, well, Connor's got injured, but yeah, Conan is a guy that we like a lot. Um, he's a very good ball carrier, probably more, uh, more productive ball carrier than CJ in terms of meters per carry. But obviously, CJ's work rate was and amount of carries was was phenomenal. Um, but it's just a great reminder from him that he's there. He's putting his hand up to be the replacement for CJ. Um, and obviously, you know, we we hope Doris, um, comes back, you know, fit and healthy because he looks like he's a He's a top-end player, and um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, uh, maybe what will happen to Munster now with, with CJ going? You know, will that open the door for one of their young back rows from their academy, or would there be some kind of movement down there? Because um, it's uh, there's a stack of back rows in, in Leinster. Uh, you, have a, you have a look in your face there that suggests you might see no, something moving. No, no, no. I just I just wonder because I actually rate Deegan really highly. Yeah, no, he's he's injured. Um, uh, and Josh Murphy, you know, he's so consistent for Leinster. He gets a huge amount of game time um, week in, week out. So he's probably an unsung hero. And then we have the people like Scott Penny, Reese Ruddock, you know, Will Connors, Josh Renner Fleer, Jack Conan, Caelan Doris. Um, Dan Levy. Dan, Dan Levy, Levy that everybody knows about. But Deegan, Deegan has, I think he's got a huge, huge potential. Um, and uh, yeah, but there's obviously some very good back row in Munster. Um, you know, uh, 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 that that are coming through as well, like Sahadnet, etc. So, yeah, it, there's a lot of good back rows in this country. But Conan, and that's that because of that, it was important that Conan took his chance, and um, he he was excellent. Tomorrow's newspaper headline: Jackman says Deegan must go to Munster now. <laughs> yeah, no, that's you. That's you. Don't that's me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wes, just 
I don't want to. I don't want to kind of put any kind of a damn. Well, I do actually. I do want to put a bit of a damn clock on it. I'm going to for a second. If this result had happened in the opening game of the Six Nations Championship, and what had followed was the first four games that Ireland played, we'd be sitting here in very different form. And I guess what I'm trying to say is, look, and you mentioned at the start, let's not get carried away with this. It was a one-off performance, but it, 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 it was preceded by four very average, stale performances. And I just would wonder exactly where we are going to be with this team come. Uh, maybe six months or a year's time next year's Six Nations. But there's an there's an argument that like if you wanted to take the most optimistic view of it is that it changed the whole complexion of the tournament in terms of the loss to Fr- like France lost to England, England were unlucky against Wales, we beat England. There's kind of a sense of there being nothing between any of the teams now. Um, and I think there is an element of the tournament was played in such an unusual context in terms of no crowds and COVID bubbles and all the rest of it that there probably is a little falsity to it that maybe we'll only really learn the true pecking order next season when things come some bit back to normal, hopefully. But yeah, of course we'd be having a different conversation if this performance happened two months ago, but it didn't. It happened three days ago, so... You know, I don't know what you want me to say to that one. No, nothing, nothing really, nothing really. I mean, look from a, from an English context as well, Donald. Um, Eddie Jones, I know, is is going to face um the RFU Performance Review Committee. It's a second, fifth place finish in the Six Nations Championship under his watch, and it seems very bizarre to think that he could be sacked so close after almost winning a World Cup uh, for England. But I guess you know, from from Eddie Jones' point of view, from England's point of view, they'll be hugely disappointed with their performances this campaign. Yeah, they will. But um, look, it's uh, Eddie Jones. He kind of digs a hole for himself uh, every, you know, all, all the time. I was uh, lis- listening to uh, read something that Lawrence Delalio uh, wrote, having interviewed uh, Eddie Jones after the last World Cup. He's never stayed more than four years in any one job. They've always gone a bit sour in the end. And uh, he said four years is the max you can stay anywhere. He's now six years in England, and it looks as if he's at like the the Mourinho effect. And uh, you yeah. know, I'd put it to I'd put it to you another way. I go back 2015 World Cup final. If you remember the world, the 2015 World Cup, Japan had this the brilliant win over South Africa. They played. They they were actually the only team that's ever I think they had the most points that didn't make a quarter final. They had a brilliant tournament. Anyway, to make a long story short, I was talking to one of World Rugby's officials. Uh, in the pre-match thing be, before the final. And we were talking about the next World Cup in Japan. And I said, that, God, I said, it's an awful pity that Eddie Jones won't be still with Japan, given all that he achieved, that he won't be with them for the next World Cup, especially when they're hosting it. And your man looked at me in horror. He said, absolutely <laughs> no way. He said, if Japan had even won the World Cup in 15, there was no way they were having him back. They just had enough. And that seems to be the way that he operates. Mm. Um, there's a finite period that you have with him and that's it. I mean, he's also, he's lost the media in the, in, in the UK as well. He came out in the build-up to the Ireland game talking about the rat poison that was being spread within the media. <laughs> uh, I thought Stuart Barnes had a great response to that in the, uh, in the London Times last Monday. But, um, you know, Eddie digs a hole for himself. I think it's probably a bigger hole now than he's been in before. But I also get the impression with Eddie... If he got a payoff and he had a million in his arse pocket and he had to sail off into the sunset, he'd be more than happy to do so. <laughs> yeah, and look, he will be in demand. I mean, his track record speaks for itself and, and he is a, an extremely gifted coach. And Wayne Pivak, uh, Burst, just to flip it, you know, 
I mean, I'm thinking back to the Autumn Nations Cup and, and the doom and gloom among Welsh supporters, Wales fans, the performance of the Welsh team when they came to Dublin that time and Ireland just beat the living snot out of them. And, and to do that from there to where they are now, which is just going down by a whisker against France at the end, it's some rise they've had in a very short space of time under Wayne Pivak, in fairness to him. Yeah, look, at I think it's, um, it's testament to, to Wayne, his ability to stick to his guns, his beliefs, um, it was always going to be very difficult for whoever came in after Joe Schmidt. It was also going to be very difficult for whoever came in after Warren Gatland. Um, I mean, you know, they both had very successful and, and, and long tenures for, for international rugby. And I think Wayne is, is, is certainly different. He, his culture and his environment will be different. He's, he's very relaxed um, in, in camp. Kind of similar to Farrow to a certain extent. It's all about the group morale, etc. Um, and also he wanted to change the way they play. Now, they haven't gone as extreme as, as Saracens and he had to pull back a little bit on on how how they played. So he had to get a balance right. So he probably probably thought he could copy and paste what Saracens Scarlets did, but international rugby, as, as we know, it, it's a lot more around power and set piece and defence. And he had to lose his defence coach, getting Jenkins came in, and he could see an improvement in that. And once they once they got that win against Ireland, I mean, um, they were absolutely flying. And look, they have very talented players uh, who have been around the block, huge experience, used to winning with Wales, and um, it's a great story. I mean, if they win on on, on, on if they win the Six Nations on Friday night, um, haven't had such a difficult twenty twenty. Pressure he was under, um, he'll he'll definitely earn earn his celebration. Absolutely, and the French were going apoplectic on uh, Saturday night. It was an incredible game, uh, Wes. Just a brilliant, brilliant game of rugby to finish things off. Galtier suggesting that the Welsh are quite cynical in the way that they play the game, that they're basically inviting uh, the opposition players to get sent off by the way they play. Would you agree with that? I mean, the, the refereeing, divided opinion. I know Eddie O'Sullivan spoke about it on Against the Head on Monday night, um, and, and it's a frustration for some people, I guess, the inconsistencies there. Uh, but Wales seem to be coming in for an awful lot of stick about their willingness to draw red cards and yellow cards, if you like. I, w- I would agree with it, to be honest. Just, just before that, I'd say, like, just with regards to some of those elder statesmen on the Welsh team, like, I, I still think those guys don't get the credit in this country that they deserve. Um, I mean, Adam Wynne-Jones was a minute away from having won a Grand Slam in three different decades the other night. Um, I, I think because Ireland have... Because Wales haven't consistently dominated, their successes in terms of Grand Slams have been sporadic, and we've beaten them in, in the intervening years. And they've been so, you know, poor, I suppose, at provincial level. We maybe don't give these guys their due, but, like, I mean, Falatau, Alan Wynne-Jones, Dan Bigger, Liam Williams, I mean, they, these guys will go down as, as all-time greats, just the same way as their contemporaries here um, would have done, so... I think we're a bit slow to, to give them their due sometimes, but but yeah, the other night I thought I thought if France didn't get that try, it would have been it would have been a travesty. I thought the I don't know what was going on with the conversation around the the grounding of the ball for the try that was given. I thought it was like a Monty Python sketch at one point. <laughs> I thought they were having a contest to see who could say the word mate the most times in a sentence, <laughs> which was absurd. But That's um, Brown, be all right. <laughs> then there was multiple French tries that weren't allowed, some that the TMO wasn't brought in for. Then, if you'd remember, there was Fiku took a quick tap that he was called back for with about three minutes to go. Like, I just thought it was... Um, I thought if France hadn't have won that game, it would have been... We would have been talking about this for the entire week. Um, and, and I do think... I don't want to say the officiating, but, like, some, some component of the laws and some component of... 
um, the mechanism by which referees communicate and how long it takes. I, I, like as much as it was a very exciting climax to the tournament and a very even tournament, I think those concerns around the slowing or, or, or making the game harder to understand for the layman, coupled with the potential for the tournament going behind the paywall, um, would be enough for me that that you that you would have to sound a note of caution about the future of the tournament but, as well. But are, th- are those delays in, in officiating ways are they not worth it if the result is more often than not correct? In other words, do we? Yeah, have- but, I mean that's that's presuming that they're all consequential decisions, but the sheer volume of penalties is another issue. I, I'm not just talking about TMO incidents. You're, you, it's, it seems yeah. at times like, particularly around the breakdown, we talked about it last week, but, but it seems like there's a penalty every other minute at this stage. Um, now, I suppose that, 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 that France-Wales game and the England-France game the week before, I'm sure World Rugby will point to those as examples of what can be achieved if, if you know, their, their plan, so to speak, came to fruition every week. But um, there, there's a lot of grey area or wiggle room where things can can kind of go badly askew in that regard, I think. Birch? Yeah, I don't think we can... I mean, to say that they they play for red cards. I mean, Win Jones can't really do anything about the two red card incidents. Tom Francis can't do anything about the two red card incidents. For me, absolutely the last 10 minutes, they were cynical. Um, but they're hanging on for a grand slam. And they... You know, they were on the ropes. Uh, like, if they win the game, do you think they're going to give a crap? We would have been just blaming the referee for allowing that. But I, I don't think they, they were really cynical in the competition. Certainly in the last 10 minutes, you know, they were trying to kill the clock. But and would if, you put the blame at the referee as opposed to with Wales? Yeah. But, I mean, to say that they... There's an accusation that they basically play for red cards. I mean, if you look at the three incidents, you know, the Tom Francis one, he can't control... Okay, he turns the wrong way, but... It's Peter Manny's fault for the, for that. Yeah, uh, sure. It's Fagerson's fault for the clean out against Wynne Jones against Scotland, and it's Paul Williams's fault for the clean out against Wynne Jones there. So Paul Williams said, by the way, who Galtier said never touched him. He never touched him. <laughs> it, no, look, Galtier thought he was going to get him cleared for this weekend, which was madness. But um, it's not hard. look. Galtier is playing the role of uh, playing his role in this, and, and it, it it suits him to have the French players feeling they're being harshly treated by to get them up for like the French we don't talk about the Irish playing in the motion you know it's a, it's an absolutely huge bigger part of, of French rugby and the, the reason they've got better is because they've actually lessened lessened that emotion a little bit um, and become more consistent in the application of it plus have a plan but uh, I, I look at I think Wales have no choice they're too much experience not to try and kill the game off they, you know they're not going to hand France to victory but I think my criticism of Pierce was um, I don't really have any issues with the TMO stuff. Okay, it was a bit matey between him and uh, and, uh, and Wayne Barnes, but he probably could have given a yellow card quicker. Uh, that's my opinion. What do you think, mate, Donald? Mate? Yeah, I, look, yes, they should have given the yellow card earlier, no doubt about it. Persistent infringement within five metres of your goal line has to get a yellow card earlier than it did. Uh, 100% agree in terms of the red card. I mean, how could you say that they... Uh, set up the scenario whereby Xander Fagus and Peter Romani and Willem all got sent off. It's nonsense. Uh, I mean, even the Willem one, like the Goji, his head and shoulders were about fucking four metres beyond Win Jones. Uh, no, his hand is near the eye area and all that. So, I mean, uh, I just think it's nonsense. The other thing in the context of the game, I've never seen so many matches where there was, or so many incidents where there was a, um, a, a 
the opposition held up over the try line. I mean, there must have been five or six of them. And there was an amount of bodies in all of them. In fact, there was one I thought Cretan, the try they gave, I thought Cretan clearly has his hand under the ball. Um, but yet the try was given. Um, I'd say that's, in my mind, was the only one they got wrong. I think we have an issue here. And like you go back to the, the you know, 20 years ago when referees weren't mic'd up. The cult of the referee was never there. The referee wasn't a personality within the game. The minute you mic fellas up and they're talking to the public, they, you, you change their whole persona. And I thought, like, uh, you had the cult of the referee and the TMO. I mean, it was all, I couldn't agree more. Like, to be fair, I think their management of it was very good. But it was, you know, look how calm we are under pressure. How, you know, how are you going there, mate? Everything yeah. is fine. Yeah. We'll take our time. <laughs> um, it's, it's personality driven. But look, it, it does it add to the drama. Uh, yes, I think it does. I mean, the, the, the bottom line is this championship will come down, as we know now, to points differential eventually. So many games, you know, take Italy out of it. So many games went right down to the wire. In the end, to be fair, John Neville's decision in terms of, yes, the Maratoja try, like that put France out of the, the running for their Grand Slam. So, but it was the right decision. So once in 99% of the cases you get the right decision, then it's worth the, the pain that you have to go through. Yeah, absolutely. I was only thinking there, Alan Lewis would have loved uh, the modern-day referee being mic'd up whenever the performance acted, but Louis would have only oh. absolutely reveled in the whole thing. <laughs> um, before we talk about the Lions, Birch, it's a massive game for France on Friday night. I mean, like they've they got to go and win this game and put themselves in a chance of winning the championship. Th th there must still be a little bit of pressure for Galtier, given that it's the last couple of weeks, I suppose, in the French camp. Yeah, look, I think um, I think there's pressure to win the game, and, and, and I think they will win the game. 21 points is a big ask um, and, yeah. score and and to get five tries or four tries. I, I can see them getting four tries. You know, their attack is is electric. It's just being able to stop Scotland scoring. So, uh, you know, Wales are favourites with the bookies to win the, win the championship. And, you know, I think France will win. They'll win convincingly, but maybe not by 21 points and, and it's going to be Wales' title. But I still think Scotland win. They've only really messed up in that game against uh, win and don't win the championship it's been a very good six nations for for france and uh while they lost to england they didn't lose a huge amount um in that loss really and um but probably have learned a little bit around their, their game management and and that young team i mean he now has two tens i mean be able to bring on intimac for Jacques bear i mean he has two quality tens with a great age profile dupont is every week outstanding um and he's got a he's got a phenomenal back row as well. So, I think France are in a in a good spot, and and I'd be shocked if they didn't win the game. But I I, I, I think it'll be hard asked to, to win the championship. Okay. I also think sorry, Hugh, before you go on, you know, we've spoken in the, in the past number of weeks about this whole Project France, Project Twenty Three World Cup, and all that. Except if you take the Six Nations out of it, the fact that this French side reduced to fourteen men were able to come from 10 points down with four minutes left on the clock to actually win the game, I think is probably far more beneficial in the longer term in terms of their confidence and belief building up towards the World Cup. I mean, nobody's suggesting that they're the finished article because they clearly are not, but they're on a path, uh, a young group. And I think the manner of that win will stand to them more certainly more than even lifting the trophy on Friday night if they were to manage the impossible. Um, 
just to be able to, like French teams in the past the 10 years would have thrown in the towel in that game. Um, so I just think the manner of the win in the end is going to be hugely beneficial to them on the road to the World Cup in two years' time. Donald, while I have you here, the Lions, I think it caught a few people by surprise this week that the tour is going to go ahead as planned. I, I, I saw comments by the Rugby Australia chief executive that he certainly didn't think it was feasible or that they would pursue it in South Africa. Um, what's your view on it overall? It looks like it'll be behind closed doors, so there probably won't be fans there, but it will be a Lions team touring in the Southern Hemisphere, which I guess is the essence of any Lions uh, team in and of itself. What's your view on it? Yeah, I think there's a bit of silly buggers going on here. It is very obvious to me that, um, look, they thought there was no way this tour could go ahead in South Africa because of all the COVID scenarios and the lack of vaccinations and all that type of thing. They looked at the alternatives, one being Australia made an offer that they could go down there and tour. They ruled that out. The second one was it looked really uh, feasible at one stage that you could host it in the UK and Ireland. Now, the Ireland part was in doubt from the start because, as we know, our vaccination situation isn't as good as it is across the water. Mm. Um, but the key part of that was a, a guarantee from the British government that they would underwrite any losses if circumstances changed and you couldn't get your minimum of 25% of the capacity into your Wembleys and Twickenham and the Arms Park and all of those things. Uh, to be honest with you, I, I never thought, why would the British government guarantee Alliance Tour? I mean, they've already, the taxpayer in the UK, uh, I think rugby through both the amateur and the professional side, the RSU have got something like 135 million already from the British taxpayer. So why would they under, uh, underwrite a potential loss on Alliance Tour? So I think to be fair to the Lions board, they looked at every avenue they could get to try and host the tour in the UK. I think then it just wasn't stacking up. So they've now gone back to the basics and the basics is the tour agreement, right? The tour agreement says that South Africa have to host a tour, but they are the hosts of the tour and we have to turn up. So I think the Lions have now said, okay, lads, we're turning up, we're picking a team, we're going to South Africa, tell us how you're going to host it. And I think that's exactly where it is now. Um, the bottom line is I think it'll cost a minimum of 7 million to run the tour, right? If you don't have crowds and the sponsors aren't getting the exposure that they thought that they were going to get, well, then there is a, a very strong danger that the four home unions, they could lose their drawers in this at a time when, you know, the, all the unions are hemorrhaging money at the moment because of COVID. So they've passed the buck to South Africa and South Africa are the host nation so therefore they're quite entitled to say to them okay lads we're going to turn up tell us how you're going to run it well, so that's exactly what's happened in my opinion it's amazing like where south african rugby isn't exactly a wash of money i know they've had to pay a fortune to get lynn cantwell to come down there and be part of the women's <laughs> set up there but that aside I, I i'm amazed really that um unless there's a contingency plan that south africa have that we haven't heard about but donald's quite right it is is, is that the onus is on them to host this tour and the lions have probably done the right by thing by saying right lads we're coming over up to you. Take it away. Tricky, though. I mean, you're talking about committing players, certainly from Ireland, travelling to somewhere that you're not allowed to travel back into the country from. Uh, you know, it's it, the idea of going to South Africa, of all places right now, seems wildly irresponsible on any number of levels. Um, do I get I think, sorry? Do, 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 I, do I get from what you said, Donald, that 
you think that the by lion saying this is going ahead, like it's it's not by any matter means certain that this is going ahead. They have just literally absolved themselves of their own responsibilities. Is that what you're saying to me? Yeah, exactly. Like they're saying, well, look, uh, we're picking a squad. You're the host nation. Uh, we're available to travel. So therefore, tell us how the tour is going to be put together. Uh, but they, but but uh, Wes is absolutely right. I mean, from a player's perspective, they will have isn't so much that they're going to present a tour itinerary and say, well, we're playing. We're not now going to play in eight different venues. We're going to play in four. They're going to have to. If I'm a player, I want some comfort that if I'm going to South Africa, how is this going to operate? Am I going to be trapped in a hotel for another two months on a tour in South Africa <laughs> that I can't go outside the door and have a coffee? Wow. Are the players, are they going to vaccinate all the players for argument's sake before the UK uh, players, you know, players from England and Wales may be vaccinated by that theory, but there's no guarantee that Irish players would be. So do they jump up? There's a whole host of issues, Hugh, that are being talked about here. The bottom line is that all the alternate issues in terms of hosting in the UK or Australia, they've run out of time because you can't organise a Lions tour in three months. Yeah. So therefore, that window has now closed. They've gone back to South Africa and said, OK, boys, tell us what you're doing and we'll turn up. Yeah, Bertrand, maybe you and I hold off buying our Factor 50 just for the time being. The two lads will be grand in the sunshine in South Africa, but you and I maybe hold off for a while. But it's it's a right mess, though, isn't it? That, that, that is, I have that to is... have the blind closed. I have to have the blind closed in, in my house. <laughs> in, in March, like, in March. Um, in, I'm wearing like... T-shirts here in Cork. It's beautiful down here. Yeah, look, I'm wearing a hoodie still. Um, but look, it is. It's a mess, Bernard. I think that the fact that it's been allowed to get to this stage so late on as well has been a, has been a bit of a disaster. We're now very, very close to actually you know, having to see a timetable of some sort, it's, it's, the whole thing's a mess. Yeah, it's a mess, but I think Donald is, is right. I think um, it's it's played out, lots of different scenarios. I think we're getting down near the end game, and um, I would be shocked if the next two weeks we don't have, you know, a decision uh, around its future. And, and if it's in South Africa, obviously, then we, we know and we have to, to make plans. But it's, um, yeah, it's a pity because, obviously, uh, it's such a special uh, part of, of players, uh, players' careers and, and fans' fans' memory. So hopefully, hopefully we get some kind of clarity on. Yeah, Munster Leinster this weekend, Wes. Um, looking forward to have to say it does look like most of the big players will be available. Um, it should be a cracking match. Um, and hopefully it's better than the last interpro between the two sides, where we're all a little bit underwhelmed. Well, certainly I was. Lads, <laughs> lads found it very interesting, but rarely or not, in fairness. Yeah, but it should be a good game, though. I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully, yeah. Um, I think the selection was the first thing that everyone has the eyes out for and still does. But the sounds as the days have gone by is that uh, internationals will be available. Um, which probably would have made a bit of a mockery of it if, if, if they hadn't have been, really. Um, I, I'd say in Leinster's case, there's probably still a little bit of rotation. Um, I think for Munster, it's, it's much more do or die um, in terms of there's no sense of, well, are we prioritising this or Europe? I think it's this week all in. Um, and, and, and equally, they didn't have as many players in the camp and some of the guys they did have in the camp didn't feature as much. So um, I, I spoke to two uh, ex Munster players last night um, and both of them actually fancied Munster which I was kind of surprised at um, Wait, Is that on the basis that Joey Carberry will start it out half? Is he going to start? I think it's on the basis that they just think they have that they might they might. I don't know I don't want to give anyone any newspaper clippings but um, that, that maybe they've 
Because, all right, we'll read Quinny on Saturday. There's more to lose there, Roger. There might be more. There might be more desperation in Munster, more desire there, possibly, to think. And that might be enough to get it done if Leinster are mixing and matching a little bit. Personally, I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that you could make Munster favourites for this game based on the last 10 meetings between the two teams. No, not favourites, but I mean, Leinster did collapse against the Ospreys last weekend, which is very unlike them. Um, Bernard, there have been a couple of performances. You think back to Connacht at the RDS, where Leinster just haven't been, I suppose, as, as consistent as they have been, albeit they've still been very good. Um, but it's an interesting game. Do you think Joey Carby will start? Should he start this weekend? Yeah, I think it's 100. Like, as long as he doesn't have any setback this week, he'll start. Um, and I think it's absolutely crucial for, for Munster. He does start. Um, I'd look back last night at the, the in the pro game where they both went full strength in Tolman Park, and, and Munster will be kicking themselves. They didn't, they're not far away from Leinster, even in the semi final in, in the Viva. You know, a couple of missed pace kicks. And like, even Ireland, like Johnny Sexton kicked 25 or 26 in this, in the Six Nations. When you have a goal kicker that's, on that kind of level, you're always going to be there or thereabouts. And, you know, there was a key moment in that game in Tolman Park, 41st minute, Munster have a chance to go in, 13-3 at halftime. And for instance, it was a long-range kick, but unfortunately hit the post and uh, Munster give away a penalty. And Leinster go back up and go in at halftime, 10-6. And they're the little small things that Munster just need to improve on. And um, I don't think they're far away. They shouldn't be far away. You match up both teams um, player for player. It's a 50-50 game, I think. And um, really, yeah, I, yeah, I'm yeah going I think to, so. Like, I'm going because to it's not going to be. Like, I don't think Ty Furlong is going to start. You know what I mean? So I think you like when we see the two teams, you match them up player for player. I think it's a 50-50 game this weekend because um, there's there's not a huge amount between them, and some stage Munster have to be able to have to beat them. I mean, you've got the I, last day. You know, Munster Leinster have got centre problems. You've got the land Chris Farrell, Joey Carberry, Connor Murray. You know, they like Keith Earls, Andrew Conway coming back. Then you bring Omani back into the mix. You got Kilcoyne, Keith Earls, you got Kilcoyne, yeah. Omani. Um, you know, um, you've got Stanner coming back in there, Coons potentially. Like, I'm writing this that monster team, Don Lenehan, will should be more than confident of, of going and winning this game this weekend. And uh, the fellow you left out there was Ty Byrne. He hasn't had a bad old Six Nations either, has he? But there you go. I mean, like, that's like player for player, there's very little, but there's, there's nothing between them, really. Best well, look, they weren't. I mean, I, I saw all three games this year live. The first game, if you remember, go back to August, I think uh, Munster lost by two points. It was a fantastic yeah. game. We were in no, we had no right to expect the game. It was the first game out of lockdown. It was brilliant. Uh, second game, the semi final of, of last season's, even though it was only in September, it was last season's Pro 14 semi final. Uh, Munster uh, didn't execute well that day. That was the day they're, they're kicking. Uh, they just kicked too deep, and Leinster knew what was coming. Uh, the third game um, in, in Thoman Park, just after Christmas, uh, Munster had that opportunity, but as Birch rightly says, they didn't extend their lead before halftime when they needed to. They made one or two poor defensive reads. And that's the trouble with Leinster. You only have to present them with one or two opportunities and they'll take it. Um, I was also at their game against Connacht, if you remember, where they, they Connacht nearly came back to beat them in the Pro 14 in that key match because they were one and two in their conference. Um, I thought Munster that night, if I was to be critical, yes, I thought their attack play was better. They played the ball out of the tackle better, but they were very lateral. While they were going through a number of phases, they weren't actually stressing the, the kind of defence to a huge degree. But I think 
Joey Carberry um, will add another. He, he has to add something to the attacking quality of that back line. You, you know, you look at the break and the, the, the Shane Daly try that night against um, Connacht. I mean, and he's played well every time he's come on since then. There's no question in my mind, and this is where it comes down to mindset. Leinster, have they won the last three in a row, is it? Certainly the last two. If yeah. not. I think it's three in a row they have. There is no question or doubt in my mind that while Leinster, of course, they want to go out and win another Pro 14, the game against Toulon the following Friday night and Champions Cup is their real priority. And I think even though every international is available, that will be reflected in the selection that they make. Now, if I'm in Leinster's shoes, I'm able to tweak that to my advantage to say, lads, all our internationals are available, but to the boys who beat Ulster up in, in Ravenhill to get us here, we're looking to you to perform this week. So they're putting responsibility, not maybe only three or four of those players or whatever, but they will have a mix. Whereas I know with certainty, Munster's preparation this week is it's Saturday. There's no tomorrow after Saturday. Even though they have Toulouse and Thoman Park and the Heineken Cup the following week, that's never even on the radar. If they were presented with the opportunity of winning the Pro 14 here and now and beating Toulouse and moving on to the next stage of the Heineken Cup, there is no doubt in my mind which they would go for. So I think that, that slight uh, differential in terms of your approach uh, maybe it may give Munster some kind of an advantage. But on the flip side of it, if Munster don't come through and they lose, and it's a Leinster team that have decided themselves to rest Johnny Sexton, to rest Tyke Furlong, and maybe one or two others, well, then it'll even be worse from a Munster point of view. So that's why I think uh, it's going to be such a fascinating game. Uh, I do think the gap is closing. Uh, I, I just throw somebody else in the mix, somebody that I was critical of for a long time was Jean Klein. John Klein is playing the best rugby. He's playing way better rugby now than he is when he was selected to go for to Japan for Ireland in the World Cup. That wouldn't be so, hard, in fairness. Well, no, stop it. <laughs> but you 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 put him and Ty Byrne in the second row, and you know have Peter Omani, CJ Stander, and Gavin Coombs in the back row. Yeah, I, I don't know. Dave Kilcoin is the only one there's a slight concern of. It doesn't matter whether they start Archer or John Ryan. Equally, they can both do a job. It's going to be a fascinating contest from that point of view. It is. And Wes, I, I, last word in the Munster game, I, I'd love to see Andrew Conway start at full back. Uh, you know, nothing against Mike Cade. He doesn't do a lot for me. I just, especially with the question now of, of whether Simon Zebo will come back into to Munster next season. There's a lot of speculation, obviously, that he's, he's going to leave Racing and come back to Munster, which would uh, really bolster the back three. I'd love to see Andrew Conway get a run at full back, I have to say. Yeah, it won't happen, Dodd. It's been very... Yeah, why though? Haley. Why? Why have they stuck with Mike Haley? Haley's been it. their man all the way through. I, I would have gone with Conway or even Darren Sweetenham way back at the start of the season, the start of last season as well. But I mean, and I do think, in fairness, Haley's performance has improved over the last month or two. Um, no, no question in my mind. I think Simon Zebo improves that back three without a doubt. But um, I don't think Simon Zebo improves that back three at the at the wages he's been paid in racing at the minute. Yeah, I suppose that's the that's the big sticking point. Um, right, lads, cracking games. Look forward to obviously commentary from uh, Michael and Donald on the. 
Pro 14 final this weekend. I should mention as well that Adam Griggs named the Ireland women's squad to compete in the Six Nations with live coverage down on RT2 television. Five debutants, including a couple of players from the Seven squad. Amy Lee Murphy-Crow is the, one of the top try scorers on the women's Seven circuit, and she's coming in um, to potentially make her debut when Ireland opened their campaign um, against Wales on the 10th of April at the Arms Park. So keep an eye out for her and Avon Parsons on either wing for Ireland. It's a big year for the Irish women's team, obviously in the context of trying to qualify for the World Cup as well, which has been postponed, we know, but in terms of putting performances together, booking their place in New Zealand for this time next year and the condensed version of the Six Nations Championship, as it were, at Wales first up, followed by France away the following week and then the playoff matches, depending on how they do as well. Live coverage on RT television for all of those women's Six Nations matches as the championship progresses. And my thanks to Bernard, to Donald and to Wes. Enjoy your company as always, lads. We will talk about the Munster-Leinster game next week on the podcast. Until then, take it easy.